Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Today, we are pleased to have back on the show Gareth Williams from Neath Wales, Paul Begg, who is in East Sussex, England, and Robert McLaughlin from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. All here to welcome journalist and author Stephen Sinise, coming to us from Cabarita Beach, New South Wales, Australia, to discuss his book, False Flag, Jack the Ripper which is an expanded edition of his book of last year, Jew Bader, Jack the Ripper, New Evidence and Theory. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And and a pleasure to be with Paul today as well. Hi, Stephen. Now, the first version of your book, Stephen, Jew Bader, Jack the Ripper, New Evidence and Theory, was released just a little over a year ago. Why so soon an expanded edition with the new title? Um, I, I had more that I wanted to say. Um, and there were little bits and pieces that were sort of at my fingertips the first time around, which in my haste and, you know, it's, it, being in a hurry is always a terrible thing, but in my haste to get it all down, um, I sort of put little bits and pieces to one side and thought, oh, look, you know, I might, I might come back to those or what have you. Um, and at the same time, um, I've wanted to uh, bring the various discussions uh, that, I, that, that I, I brought up with uh, Jubeta I wanted to bring them to some kind of proper, maybe even a more personal uh, conclusion than I did. Um, with Jubeta, it was divided in 13 chapters, and that 13th chapter was um, carrying a lot of weight as it, was, as it was, because not only was it a chapter in its own right, that it had its own conversations happening and its, its own evidence being presented and so forth. But it was also doubling um, as a concluding chapter. I also, uh, Jubeta, as, as per False Flag, is, is written exclusively um, in, the, uh, in the third person. And it had been brought to my attention by, by friends and so forth that if, if, if a criticism was going to be painted along those lines, that one of those was that, that impersonal uh, dimension. Um, so I dealt with all those issues in one go by, by uh, providing a, a, a concluding chapter or, or an epilogue, which to some degree liberated that 13th chapter to do what it was meant to do um, in the end of chapter notes which every chapter um, in my in the in the two in the two editions have got end of chapter notes where I go over some observations that have come up during the course of the chapter or some relevant issues um, and with that 13th chapter then I was able to expand uh, on certain points regarding geography for example um, and it, it, it just really freed up that end of the book to do other things rather than, 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 than carrying the weight 
of a conclusion, which in in some ways I I didn't really get to say everything that maybe I I, I should have said. So in, in false flag, I've got the epilogue there, and uh, hopefully I've, I've I've dealt with some of those things. Certainly from from an authorial uh, point of view, I feel I feel more liberated for that. But that's not to say that throughout um, false flag there aren't additional bits and pieces that have that have come to the fore that I've been able to take my time with uh, and include and discuss and bring forth little other pieces of evidence that I, I regret not having done so with um, with with Joe Bader. That's just to give you a very rough idea. There's also some new photos in there uh, which I thought uh, may have may have been interesting, um, including uh, both a, a period photograph from 1887 of the old Darlinghurst Jail in Sydney where uh, I proposed that George Hutchinson uh, finished up or was eventually released from, and a contemporary, a contemporary photo because the, 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 the old Darlinghurst Jail is still there. Um, in all, in all its glory, but it's today. It's the, it's an art school. It's the Sydney Art School, um, and interestingly enough, uh, it's diagonally across the road from the uh, Sydney Jewish Museum. Huh. Oh, um, it's it's which which opened which reopened. Sorry, which reopened recently, about ten years ago, I think. Um, so I, I just I just find that one of those little you know historical ironies that um, things should have panned out in that way. And retitling the book, what was the uh, reasoning behind that? Yeah, um, I wanted to distinguish between the two editions. I I, I suppose that there was. A significant expansion there. It's an expanded edition, False Flag. Um, in terms of the meat and potatoes of the book, uh, putting aside the various uh, bits of window dressing and so forth, um, in terms of the meat, meat and potatoes of the book, it's about roughly about a 20% um, expansion. Mm-hmm. In, uh, so there was that. But look, I'm, I'm already, I'm, you know. I, I, look, I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying that there will be a third edition, but in the event that there was a third edition, I'm, I'm very, very tempted to go back to that original title because I just think it nailed um, my my conversation there, my discussion, um, right. so succinctly in one word. Um, so, I think for a lot of um, people, the the title Jubater was pretty jarring at first. Unexpected, given uh, all of the um, racial undertones of the of the case, anyway. Um, but once you get to re- now, I I hadn't read Jubater, um, but I did read False Flag, and once you start reading False Flag, even you quickly understand why the first book was titled Jubater. Uh, y- yes, with um. With 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 the uh, the the title Jubater, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think there was even there was even a call from a radio show in uh, the United States for that it was inappropriate or that um, the, the the book shouldn't be allowed to be 
named in that way or that the book should be banned. I'm not exactly sure. Really? Um, but the, 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 the thing is, I, I think that it's quite possible that what I had just assumed was a slightly archaic term because at the end of the day, uh, Jubeda was the terminology back in Victorian times for an anti-Semite. Um, the, the battle between those two terms um, after World War II um, went most certainly in favour of anti-Semite as the correct term. Um, and But I, I always assumed that Jubeda was, was still a current term. And, and, and I think to some degree it is. The, the, the point there is that maybe it is, it is a bit slightly archaic, but at the end of the day, we are dealing with a Victorian era, um, history, and we are using a very, uh, Victorian era term, um, which is uh, perfectly apt, um, for the material under discussion. So, uh, that's. Well, as, I don't think we've even quite mentioned the fact that this is a book on George Hutchison. The uh, we should get that make that clear to the to the listeners who haven't uh, read this book. And I think it's the best the best George Hutchison as suspect book that I've read. Well, um, Jonathan, I I'm, I'm very mindful um, that in. If we're talking just about Hutchinson in pure terms of, of Hutchinson, um, I've, the, as you're, as you're probably aware, having read my book, my, my book is dedicated to, uh, those that have gone before, um, yes. including, uh, obviously Bob Hinton and Stephen Wright and Gary Rowe and, uh, Chris Miles. Um, so, you know, Hutchinson has, has been, uh, Criticised before, um, I, I was very, I was very mindful once Hutchinson came onto my horizon um, a couple of years ago. I was very mindful not to go back and read um, the the books that have gone before, simply because I thought if I'm going to write a Hutchinson book, I don't want to basically go over the same ground with the same perspectives and the same insights. Important. And interesting as those uh, perspectives and insights obviously have been um, over these last uh, 20 years. Um, but I, I was very mindful. So apart uh, maybe from the, the, the question of age, uh, which is very interrelated with the issue of Toppy, um, I did not go back um, and, and look at, at, at what anyone else has had to say. Um, and apart from, uh, uh, in, in Chris Miles's book, there's a, uh, a section of, it, it, it comes down to about a paragraph in the end, um, where he talks about, um, uh, Joseph, Joseph Barnett's brother, Dan. Um, and so I re-familiarized myself with that conversation, which to some degree uh, overlapped with some of the material I think that uh, Bruce Paley had to bring forward with 
um, with Dan or Joseph Barnett and, and, and Dan Barnett. Um, but apart from that, um, I just made a very conscious effort very early on in the piece to try and um, have a fresh have a fresh look um, at at Hutchinson. But at, at the end of the day, important obviously important as Hutchinson is to my uh, to my thesis. If 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 you look at the at, at the bulk of of what I, I've written, it, it's almost it's almost as if Hutchins, as if Hutchinson is symptomatic of the story, <laughs> uh, um, rather than you know the great symposium of the story, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah, I do. Um, and I want you to talk a little bit about that because um, the nearly the first half of your book is a really interesting and much needed discussion about Jewish immigration to the East End in the latter half of the 19th century. Yeah, look, I, 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 it's, it, and, and from there, and from there we have a number of peripheral conversations that, that open up. But by, by the same, I'm, I, I'm very glad to hear you say that, that, that you find it interesting because I'm also mindful of the fact that... Um, you know, some of my friends and family, and, and quite rightly, and I, and I must imagine uh, numerous other readers as well, have sort of had, had a look at my book and, and must have thought, you know, when's, when's he going to get to the guy with the top hat and the cape? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, that's, that's been put to me. And, and I can understand that, and I can understand that kind of a, a response, so that, that kind of reaction. I mean, who in their right mind wants to hear about demographic shifts and political dynamics and parliamentary select committees and community tensions and industrial questions and all these uh, social political issues that, 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 that I bring up with my research. I mean, if, if you want to buy a book about Jack the Ripper or, or read about Jack the Ripper, given the... the, the, the the, the popularly uh, understood notion of the story, um, I, I can well understand that someone picking up my book may well respond along the lines of saying, you know, please hurry up and get to the guy with the cape. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, actually, Stephen, um, that the, you know, the get on with it bits, if you like, of, of, the, of your book um, are, as Jonathan said, um, you know, uh, quite essential reading. Uh, it's very important that we get that context across, uh, and, and you did it really well. Uh, so, so you know, thanks for that. Well, uh, first of all, Gareth, um, allow me to compliment you on your beautiful Welsh accent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's 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 lovely to hear. Um, I, I've found it very interesting. To, to be researching um, these aspects because at the end of the day, once the momentum started to build up for these aspects to be heard, it was deafening. To me, it was deafening. And I, I don't mean to say that the material wrote itself because it was a lot of hard, hard work. 
uh, it was exhausting. Um, there's a lot of researching, as, as you can tell by the, the, the footnoting that had to be dug out and so forth. But once you pick up that thread, it, it is, for me, it was impossible to ignore. Um, and I'd <clears throat> not really started to look into it until, you know, George Hutchinson happened to pass by my doorstep, as it were, because I, I didn't go looking for him. And we might discuss the, the, the circumstances um, in which George Hutchinson presented himself. But going back, I'd always sort of half felt back of my mind there was always something going on around that Jewish anti-Semitic angle that I'd sort of half heard and not heard. But um, I remember it particularly sort of coming into focus um, I was when I when I first moved to northern New South Wales, I, had, I I was working at Southern Cross University as a union organizer, and I had the good fortune of having uh, an office on campus. And our largest division amongst the the personnel there at Southern Cross University was the university librarians, as you can imagine, within a library uh, within a university. The library, obviously, is one of their biggest facilities. And I, you know, made friends with a number of the librarians there. And in my various reading, I don't even think it had anything to do with Jack the Ripper. I just came across this essay, which just caught my interest, um, written by uh, Colin Holmes in, in some academic journal. I, I can't even remember. Anyway, it was the days before the internet had you know, definitely established itself and things were still relatively hard to get your hands on. And so I, I mentioned to this librarian friend of mine and I said, look, I've, I've come across this essay uh, that's called The Ritual Murder Accusation in Britain. Um, would, would, do you think you might be able to get it for me? It's been published by some journal in the UK. And she said, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, she, was, she had it faxed over from the UK and it started, the, the bits and the bits started to sort of give me a, a, a wider understanding of, of the period. I mean, compared to what I know today in 2018, I mean, we're, we're talking about the early noughties uh, here. Um, you know, my, my understanding's evolved somewhat. And, but, um, I, up until that point, I, I, I'd, I'd never even heard of this. Um, uh, uh, and I use it in inverted commas because there's no such thing as Jewish ritual murder. But I'd never heard of the blood libel, the the accusation itself. Absurd! It's, it's absurd as it is. But um, in in the 1880s, a lot of people believed this sort of garbage. Um, and at to the point where at the height of the murders. Um, in October of 1888, you had the Times jumping on board um, with this rubbish um, with, uh, via their uh, Vienna correspondence. Um, and once, once you start to understand, okay, that there had been these two great cause celebs um, in Austria-Hungary, the, 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 the Ritter case and the um, Tisa Esla case, the extent to which it had poisoned the minds 
um, of of relative people that you would imagine to be relatively normal everyday kind of people in the East End and beyond um, that they had started to believe this rubbish that they'd been reading in the newspapers such was the power of these of, of these stories I mean it was a, it was a time of rising anti-semitism and so on and, and so forth but um, the, the media did its best at times to, to, to refute the libel and they, they were sensitive at, at certain moments and then at other moments they weren't or that they, they could have shown a greater degree of, um, let's say, responsibility. Um, and so that's, that, that started to, 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 to form in, in, in my mind. But, I mean, the, the, the issues with um, the Ritter case and, and Tisa Esler while I first came upon them, you know, about 15 years ago or so, it's only been in these last, you know, two and a half years or what have you, that I've, that I've understood the full magnitude of the, the extent to which they, it had permeated people's imagination. Everyone had heard of, 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 of these cases. And, you know, I, I have to ask myself, let's, let's put aside the issue of all the, the demographic tensions and the industrial tensions and the political tensions that were going on at that moment in the East End. Let's just put that aside. I have to ask myself, would John Pizer had gone through what he went through had not Tisa Esler and the Ritter cases made such a big splash during the 1880s. Um, I have to ask myself whether the Jews who, you know, the street talk early on was the Jews, the Jews that committed these murders. Would, would that have been the case but for Tisa Esla and the Ritter case? I suspect all the various bits and pieces made their contribution, but um, I really have to underline those two uh, famous blood libel cases which had grabbed such uh, such attention in, in Britain during the 1880s. Indeed. I think actually the, um, the parallels, particularly between uh, the Ritter case and what we saw in, in White... I mean, the Ritter case only happened, what, four years before? Um, uh, no, uh, I think Ritter was 1881 or 1882. There was about a one-year lag before it okay. started hitting the British media. So that was early 1880s. But because of all the twists and turns with the case and the appeals and the Ritter was condemned to death and then he was acquitted and then he was, you know, it just went on and on and on. Yeah. Um, it dragged out throughout the 1880s. So it's still, you know, reasonably... News on the street, I suppose, in, in in London at the time, and and of course you had that mutilation connection as well. Yeah, um, and attention well, was drawn to that in, in 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 the press, I believe. The, the the interesting thing is that they had made such a mark that, for example, in early eighteen eighty eight, there had been a flood in eastern Hungary um, in a place called Tokai, where. Uh, uh, it's still famous for it's a, it's a wine growing region and, and their wine is still famous today, the Tokay wine. So it made the press. The flood made the press. 
the, the, the floods in Tokai made the press. But Tokai was near Tiza Esla. So the actual news report that started out reporting on the floods ended up talking about the, the Jews that had been accused of murdering Esther Salamosi, etc., etc., the village of Teza Isla. So, you know, you, you could not so much as mention Hungary at that point yeah. that immediately Teza Isla was, was dragged into it. And so much so that at the very beginning, when, uh, and we're talking around the time of uh, the Nichols murder or, or immediately thereafter the, the, the Nichols murder, there were... Um, um, a, a, a couple of newspapers. The, the Paul, Mall, Paul Mall Gazette, strangely enough, was one of them. I, the, the second one escapes me, but they were they were making references. They 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 didn't want to come out and say what the racist rumours on the streets were. So they made reference to what these to, to there being racist rumours, but they made references to the wilds of Hungary that you would have to go to the wilds of Hungary to see crimes like this. So even even then, when they were sort of half mindful of the fact that, look, you know, we, 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 we don't want to start something here because um, the temperature on the streets are already high because of the, you know, all the industrial and social and, and political issues that were bubbling away in the East End, you know, not for nothing... Did, did we have two parliamentary select committees um, investigating the East End at that moment? It was it was a very real consideration, um, and 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 Parliament was very mindful of of the temperature in the East End. So even the papers. But the thing was that by by the time we got down to the double event, um, and we started getting those um, the Vienna correspondence with with the Times sending through those reports, that was it. All bets were off. And all that tiptoeing and sort of shadow play, and we don't want to quite say it, but you know, this is this is the, the wilds are hungry and all the rest of it. By the time we get down to the, the to the double events, and then the Times jumping on board with those those reports, which you know, quite rightly, the the, the leadership of the of the Jewish community in London took them to, took them to task, and ultimately the the, 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 the Times themselves understood. I think that they'd maybe overstepped the mark, and and finally they threw up threw up their hands and said, "We we don't want to talk about this anymore." Editorial edict: We we will not discuss this issue in the pages of our newspaper. And I think that the other newspapers were very mindful of the fact that the Times had brought down that editorial edict because it's about the same time, or most definitely the same time that. The other newspapers started to back off. The, the, the Times said it's, it's all clear, and then they said, "No, we, we, we're closing this down." And, and it seems to have done the trick. I mean, we've also got to remember that the police were highly mindful at the same time. You know, with the Gulson Street of Graffito being um, one one example of the, the the police understanding that you know we've we've got we've got issues here. We're, we're not we're not just dealing with Jack the Ripper here. We've got we've got other uh, major problems, <laughs> um, you know, and, and and we saw that after the murder of of uh, Chapman and the fear that, that the police had with the reinforcing of the police stations and so forth, just to be sure. And um, 
so they were they were very uh, they were they were very uh, uh, moments of, of 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 great tension in terms of where where is this thing going to take us next? So so it was against this background then um, that <clears throat> any prospective ripper yeah could have uh, could have could have used all this. Um, Suspicion, if you like, of, of of the Jewish population, which was incredibly, you know, dense in that part of London. Um, yes. You mentioned Arkell's maps of of of, of, of Jewish population mm-hmm. density, um, and, and I recommend anyone who's listening in to actually sort of Google those. That's that, that that's Arkell A R K E double L. Um, was that in eighteen ninety nine? He he produced a, a a map like Booth's maps. <clears throat> Showing the Jewish uh, population density in that part of London. Um, yes, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think he actually worked in conjunction with Booth's project. Yes, yeah, it's got Booth's fingerprints all over it, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Yeah. But you know, so that'll give you an idea of of of, of the number of Jews that there were living in that area, um, and you know, the uh, I guess against that backdrop, coupled <clears> with. Uh, rumours of blood libels and coupled with almost snide remarks in the press, you know, no true Englishman could have done this type uh, mentality, Um, that any prospective ripper could have used that as a lever to throw suspicion away from himself. Unless, of course, he began with that very idea, um, mindful of of the fact that there were two parliamentary select committees that were investigating the East End at that moment and mindful that one of those committees, or well, they both brought down um, interim reports. Uh, what it, if, if I might just a moment explain here about the two parliamentary select committees. Uh, one of the first of those was the, um, the House of Commons uh, Select Committee on Immigration. Um, and that it had on it as one of its members, the uh, Member of Parliament for Whitechapel, Samuel Montague. Uh, The second one, it was um, a House of Lords committee looking into the sweating system um, and the sweating system uh, that that was prevalent in the East End at that moment. Um, It sought essentially to exploit a network of sweatshops to under to underpay um, workers working in, in horrible conditions, unsafe conditions. Often it was um, these recently arrived migrants who were essentially refugees from pogroms in Eastern Europe and so forth who out of desperation and not having any other options agreed to go and work in these sort of places. And, of course, British Labor had their nose out of joint because the, the big issue was that they were undercutting, supposedly they were undercutting uh, British conditions. Uh, of course, it wasn't just the purview of British Labor because uh, a lot of conservative uh, politicians um, sought to make, make mileage uh, of the issue and so appealed to many of the uh, native-born uh, British uh, pe- people of the, the East End, workers of the East End, who, who maybe have had been feeling some dislocation or some competition 
with with this new working system, this exploitative working system. And so the, the East End of London was the, the focus of the, the, the committee uh, looking into the sweating system. In fact, it was part of its terms of reference. And not only that, but they got a special permission from Parliament to get a member of the House of Commons to sit on a committee for the House of Lords. So Samuel Montague was on both committees, essentially. Um, that, such was the focus of these two committees on, on Whitechapel. And, you know, we've got to remember that in, in those days for, for workers, you know, they, they, it was the difference between eating and not eating working. Um, these, the, being politically active and being politically involved, however much one may not have been educated, um, nevertheless, um, this, this was, a, these were bread and butter issues. These were the issues of survival. Um, and, and so the, the, the I, I propose in my book that in fact the, the whole, the whole point of, of the, 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 the Ripper atrocities was to shut the door to Jewish immigration, um, to gain the, um, the attention of the two parliamentary committees. And let's not forget that these parliamentary committees were, um, were, were evident in the media. People knew that, that these parliamentary committees were out and about. Workers were talking about it. Um, workers were saying things like, um, you know, all we've got to do is break the heads of 50 Jews down here in Whitechapel and, you know, we've We've, we've made our point. We've made our point before the committees. There were all sorts of machinations going on, um, mindful. And there was even contrived evidence presented by the, by the hack nationalists, people like Arnold White, um, presenting you know, fabricated evidence for, for which he was embarrassed. So to, to, to some degree, I, I, I see a rationale there. Um, because if the, the the point of the exercise, the expectation on the street was that these committees were going to close the door to Jewish immigration when they brought down their reports in July. Instead, what the committees did was, to the great chagrin and disappointment of, of, of so many, including um, elements of the media, um, they said, well, we're not, we're not going to recommend that. We're not going to make any recommendations. We're just going to keep taking evidence. And as far as the, the sweating committee is concerned, um, we're not even going to keep taking all that much evidence from the east end of London. Um, the autumn will suffice. Um, we're not, we're not particularly interested in going beyond the autumn at this point. So those, those, um, committee recommendations were met, met with a, a great deal of disappointment um, in, in the East End because there had been uh, such a build-up of, of misplaced hope that these committees were going to solve all their problems, supposedly, by banning Jewish immigration. Um, so it, it helps set the stage. It helps to understand what was going on. And... Um, the other thing that needs to be said here is that these these were very desperate times, as we all know. Um, what tended to happen, and I'm not 
saying necessarily that it was a black and white situation because uh, British Labor was doing what it could um, in terms of engaging the issue and so forth. But what tended to happen was that the native Britons seemed to have been cleaved off from the broader struggles of the left and of the labour movement. They seem to have been cleaved off in the East End and gone over to the to the side of the nationalists, to the side of the conservatives. And in fact, um, there has been some um, analysis done of voting patterns in the East End uh, in the two decades from 1886. And there's an unexplainable spike in the conservative vote. And some academics argue that the only reason, that the only way that that can be explained is because of the issue of anti-Semitism. In other words, that the native Britons had thrown in by that stage, had thrown in their lot with the right side of politics, with the conservative side of politics, with the nationalist side of politics. And conversely, that the Jews were seen as a radical element, a socialist element. Um, so, I mean, and we still see evidence of that occasionally today, that um, sometimes things do break in that way. Um, I, I was going to say I that. Think that's, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, Stephen, that's that's exactly what we, we have seen um, in the UK you know, and elsewhere, I dare say, at various points in history. Yeah, uh, uh, by my Germany being uh, the obvious example, I guess. Yes, that, that's right. And and you know, w look, um, I, without without going into specific details these days, I mean, there's there's plenty of examples, be it in British politics, Australian politics, uh, American politics. You know, we can see a little bit of that um, of that uh, polit political dynamic. Um, that it's, it's almost universal, it's almost timeless. And it was very much, very much alive in the East End at that moment. So in, in terms of my bigger story, I suppose, I start to think, okay, well, I can potentially start to understand this George Hutchinson who became a blackleg, who threw in his lot with capital. Um, why, because you, you would ask yourself, why is a, um, you know, a, a struggling worker, why, why are they joining the, the cause of Blackleg, especially, um, during the, 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 the Great London Dock Strike, which I propose is the means by which George Hutchinson, well, we, we, we know that's the, the means by which, um, Aussie George, as he's been dubbed, uh, got out of London. But why, why would you do that? Why, why would you become a scab? Why would you become a blackleg? Um, and it's clear from the Australian side of the story that this George Hutchinson was a down and out, or he, he seemed very much to be a down and out. Um, why would you throw in your lot with, you know, by, by becoming a, a, a blackleg? And I think if you look at the bigger picture, it's, it starts it starts to become comprehensible. Um, and, and then, you know, it all, it, it all ties in because I can't get away from the fact that 
for example, on, on the night of the double event, that he left one corpse at the door of a radical a Jewish a radical club and Yiddish associated Yiddish newspaper and another one behind the, the, the great synagogue. In fact, the last sighting, nine minutes before she was found by PC Watkins, was at the essentially at the entrance of the, the, the great synagogue, the southern entrance, because the, the corner of Duke Street and Church Passage is the southern entrance of the of the great synagogue. That's that's the last sighting of her. Um, and you know, it's crossed my mind. I, I wonder if Lavendi and friends hadn't come along at that moment, might the site of that murder have been at the at the southern entrance of the great synagogue instead of uh, adjacent? It's it's. It, it, it all to me. The, the, there seems to be a thematic at play here, and, and then not not to mention the the Goulston Street graffiti, which Gareth and I are probably going to disagree on. But anyway. And before you jump into that, can I um and ask you a, a little bit about um the International Working Men Club in uh, Burner Street, um and of course the murder there, and um get your take on um riots and protests that occurred both before and after the Ripper murders um, that occurred outside of that club um, by people hostile um, to the Jewish immigrants and, you know, uh, to their communist socialist slant. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder what your take is on that. Okay. How it relates I, I to think, George Benson, what you're talking about. I think you're referring to uh, I think you're referring to the the, the riot there in Burner Street in 1989. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yes, one uh, of the, the, yeah. There's yeah, two the, others, the, but that's that's the main one that gets mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's interesting because there's there's different takes there's different takes on it. Uh, according, for example, to an anarchist journal, um, it was the police that fermented the riot. And that uh, things got out of control as a result of the police. If you read the mainstream media, it seems to be that for some reason the the radicals seem to have picked up a lot of um, antagonistic elements along the way. So it's 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 a little bit um, it's a bit a little bit problematic to see clearly exactly what transpired um, with that riot in 1889. What, what I have found particularly interesting with the issue of that riot is the fact that as per the, nights of, uh, as per the night of the double event, what, what really leaps out at me is the, uh, at me is the ge- geographic um, implications because what we had was r- the radicals, the Jewish radicals of London, whose headquarters was there essentially with the Arbeiter France, the, the, the newspaper that was printed on the premises and the um, International Working Men's Club. Right, the Worker's Friend in English for those who don't Yes, know. yes, yes, it's the Worker's Friend. It translates to the Worker's Friend in English. Anyway, um, what I found very interesting about that episode was that we had the two headquarters, as it were, of different aspects of um, the, the Jewish community um, 
operating during that riot. We had the Burner Street Club and then we had the march up to the Great Synagogue, which was the, 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 the righteous the righteous Jews up at the at, at the Great Synagogue. Um, they had sought to take their demonstration into Mitre Square. They had been refused. They ended up at the Mile End Waste back in the East End and then finally back at the club and, and you had that the explosion of um, of rioting that that, that, that that you saw experienced there, whether it was precipitated by the police or not. Um, the interesting thing that I find about the night of the double event that you have both those headquarters, for want of a better term, um, come into the picture on on the night of the double event. And, I, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, for example, that um, Stride is seen with this short, stoutish, um, five foot five, five foot six kind of character with the stout build and the wide shoulders and so forth. It's pretty much described consistently by all the witnesses that night, starting with Marshall and Best, uh, Gardner and Best, and then Marshall and then Smith and then Brown and then Schwartz. The, 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 the physical attributes of, of the suspect, um, bear a certain consistency there, there, which, which, you know, grabs you, I suppose. And I, I find it interesting that they had been up and down in front of the club four times in the space of about an hour or an hour and a half or whatever. They were spotted four times going up and down um, with with the club as as the the the, the anchor point almost um, before the, the the final attack there. And I, I asked myself the question um, whether the leaving a corpse on the premises of the of the club was the whole point of the exercise um and in fact um the 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 coroner sort of half makes the same point when he says that um he he must have gone to an some extraordinary lengths to 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 place her in his diabolical clutches um and you know to me I, i i that that's that speaks quite loudly uh, to me, especially if we consider that then uh, uh, not having been able to mutilate her, and if we keep in mind the whole notion, if in fact he was being motivated by the blood libel and the fact that you know, the, according to the to this 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 horrible libel, this horrible blood libel that supposedly the, the Jews go around doing things like this about mutilating women in these particularly dramatic kind of ways. Um, I also ask whether the fact that he was unable to mutilate Stride because the, the, of the way events transpired quite likely or quite possibly at the very least it seems like he got himself into a bit of a difficult situation there at the at the club. Um, the fact that he couldn't mutilate her, that he could only kill her before he was interrupted, he didn't respond in in a panicked fashion, thinking, "They're not. I, am I going to be able to get my message across? Are people going to be able to understand that the Jews are responsible if I don't mutilate her?" And so. We then see what we see um, 
up on the other end of town um, with uh, Eddowes having been mutilated uh, up until that point. No one had been mutilated as badly as Eddowes. And I wonder if that escalation was not born of the problems that he encountered in, in Burner Street, if it was not born of the fact that he was not able to mutilate her and the very important message the mutilation was supposed to carry with these murders. So it also gives further um, fuel, as far as I'm concerned, for the Goulston Street of Graffito. I, is it possible that he felt that he needed to make that point, literally spelling it out because of the fact that he was unable to mutilate Stride and the very important part of the message contained by the mutilations, that the, that the Jews were responsible for this, that the, 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 the Jews are the people that are doing this. I wasn't able to mutilate her, but I'll leave a message. I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll do it again. I'll, I'll do it again in Mitre Square. And I wonder if that doesn't help explain some of the events of, of the some of some of the things that transpired during the night of the double event. And don't you, in your book, discuss um, anti-Jewish riots that were centered on Goulston Street prior to the double event? No. What 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 I mentioned there is a meeting of the Primrose of the Primrose League, which was, um, if I understand correctly. Um, an arm of the Conservative Party. And what what happened was at that political meeting, um, they tried to manipulate the sentiment of some of the, the Jewish members of that meeting, the Jewish members of the Conservative Party, just rank and file members from what I can gather, by um, making reference to certain events that had transpired in Ireland and some of the crazy things that um, Irish Labor was going around saying um, against the Jews. Um, and so the, the Primrose League, the Conservative Party people there at that Goulson Street party meeting started quoting these anti-Semitic, essentially anti-Semitic slanders of a different kind. They were calling, um, they were calling the Jews... Um, crucifying gypsies um, and other you know horrible um, names uh, along those lines and so the the, the conservatives in terms of uh, hoping to maybe garner a little bit of support um, tried to manipulate the feelings of the, the Jewish electors there by citing those um, the only the only other riot that that I'm aware of is the the one that happened um, after after Chapman's uh, demise, and um, the, the 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 shouts of no Englishman and the Jews did it. It was the Jews that did it. it the Jews are responsible and so forth. That um, the, the the police were able to send reinforcements, and then after that. Um, they, 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 as, as far as I understand, they pretty much brought that right under control by by morning. Um, that things had resolved. And with Mitre Square being next to the Great Synagogue, is it your belief that he purposefully uh, picked that location, or from leaving the International Working Men's Club, it was just a 
happy coincidence for him that he ended up um, right next to the great synagogue. Well, look, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I can only I can only surmise um, what 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 may have transpired. Um, what what I propose is that because of the botching of what happened in Burner Street, the, the, by botching I mean being unable to mutilate Stride, being interrupted and being unable to mutilate her, that he then panicked, thinking I've I've got to perform a mutilation by way of letting people understand that this is what the Jews are doing. Um, that, that part of his incriminating um, narrative. And that he ended up on the corner of Duke Street and Church Passage. And as I've said, that's the southern entrance of the Great Synagogue. And it's possible that, or it crosses my mind, that one of the things that may have happened is that Lavendian friends may well have interrupted um, what what he planned to do at that locale. The, 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 the fact remains that within nine minutes of Lavendian friends uh, citing Catherine Eddowes and Jack the Ripper at that site, um, she's found dead and mutilated. So we're talking about a very, very tight time frame here. And that's that's why I, I you know I, I try and think what 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 does that very tight time frame what could it what could it imply um, was was he determined you know to, to 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 get it over and done with very very quickly was he interrupted by them um, did he choose the next best location which was basically to go up church passage and then find the the, the, the requisite spot there um, in Mitre Square. Um, was was he thinking potentially that um, if he did it quickly enough, Lavendian friends might still be around um, to cop the blame? Um, was he lingering possibly at the southern entrance of the Great Synagogue so that they might be seen there? Um, these are the various things that I put um, to the reader as possible scenarios um i've sort of belatedly i've I've sort of come to lean towards the the possibility that he he may well have been interrupted by by lavendian uh lavendian friends um certainly it was the last it was the last location where they were sighted and she was found uh, very shortly thereafter, dead and mutilated, uh, very close by. And, you know, he'd already left one corpse um, at the entrance of one Jewish institution that night. Um, it, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly suspicious to me. And with um, Nichols and Chapman, um, what would have been the... I mean, I'm kind of having a hard time understanding because typically we think of Jack the Ripper as a sexual serial killer. Yeah. Um, but with the double event, you're you're putting a political spin on it, a racial spin. Do you believe that Nichols and Chapman, uh, was there any significance in uh, where they were targeted? Or do you think that he was, he was just... Um, 
uh, running up to what um, eventually happened on the night of the double event? Yeah, well, uh, I, I think certainly, um, you know, serial killers evolve. And, um, you know, it's like anything. You you get a feel for something, the more, the more into it um, you progress um, along the line of your experience. Um, but at the end of the day, if, even if we consider the Chapman and the Nichols murder, the, 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 the ghastly um, mutilations, the ghastly nature, nature of the murders, the, the mutilations, are still consistent with, with the narrative that, you know, the, the, the Jews are behaving um, in this particular way because it's, it's, it's their way. I mean, this is the, 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 the feeling that was on the street at that moment. I mean, of course, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to us in 2018 that people could possibly think this way. But there seems to be evidence that in the East End, um, the, the murders were immediately attributed to the Jews um, because of the nature of the mutilations. Um, what, what I'd also um, say uh, in regard to the, the, the sites of the Stride and... Uh, sorry, to the Nichols and, and uh, Chapman murder and also the, the attack um, on uh, Ada Wilson was that both the attack on Ada Wilson and the attack on Nichols happened essentially around the corner from Jewish cemeteries. So I speculate whether there may have been some kind of uh, topographical association um, being played out there as well. But um, I think he went for whatever levers uh, he could reach for by way of getting his message across, um, primarily by the... The, the barbaric nature of the of the mutilations and the way that these women uh, were killed, um, but I also think that there were occasions when he um, enlisted geography in support of his uh, narrative. Why target prostitutes? Well, first of all, I think they they unfortunately they were easy targets, but. If we want to delve into the logic of the blood libel and the Ritter case and the Tizer Esla case, and I use the word logic sarcastically here because it's to, you know there there is no logic. The the the, the blood libel um, is a is a horrible slander, but according to what was being printed in the papers, according to the case that was put by the prosecution, for example, in the Ritter case, all the touchstones of that story were very sexual. Okay, the story, the story was that Ritter had killed um, a, a, a young woman in his employ or his mistress, um, depending on, on what you read. And... Because he needed to, quote, cleanse himself, according to, quote, Jewish superstition, as prescribed 
supposedly by various uh, Jewish religious books. He needed to, first of all, kill and mutilate his um, the, 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 the object of his sexual union, and then dissect and steal away with parts of her anatomy and hide them away, right? So this, this is the kind of rubbish, first of all, that the prosecution carried on with in, in Austria-Hungary, and second of all was repeated, um, sometimes uncritically, in the British media. So that's, that's, that's the Ritter case. In the, in the case of the Tisa Isla case, um, Esther Solomosi was, um, uh, had her throat cut, but with a severity that either decapitated her, according to the reports, either decapitated her or partially decapitated her. Um, again, because of supposed, um, alleged Jewish ritual. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all rubbish, but that's, that's what was being printed in the press, um, at the time. And these, these are the arguments that the prosecution, um, uh, put forward, um, with, with those two cases. So there, there, there seems to be a degree of overlap with the, 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 the nuts and bolts of these two cases and what seems to have been taking place in Whitechapel. Um, there's no question that um, the, 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 the British media was uh, very fascinated by these two cases. Um, a lot of the times, the, the editorialising around these cases left readers in no doubt that the, 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 the blood libel was nothing but a slander, that the prosecution cases were you know, trumped up and coerced confessions and all the rest of it. Um, unfortunately, sometimes they didn't. Um, unfortunately, there were occasions when they just reported dispassionately on the case and the, you know, the thrusts and parries of what was playing out in court. And then there were those occasions where, unfortunately, they seemed to have uh, given quite a bit of credence um, to, to these reports that, uh, you know, authoritatively, supposedly with authoritatively, um, wrote back to London. The, the 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 British correspondents got back to London, saying that you know they've they've ascertained that in fact these you know the the prosecution um, case is all you know above board and and all the rest of it. Which you know it's at the end of the day, both both Ritter and the men that were accused at Tesla Esla, they were all they were all released. They were all released. Um, the, the the cases that were brought against them were a shambles. Um, uh, there's also a, um, a different case, Stephen, that um, I wouldn't mind bringing up because um, I haven't read your book yet, but I, I plan to. Um, and you probably have some thoughts on it, but um, the Israel Lipsky murder in 1887 of uh, Miriam Angel in Batty Street, which is just a block away from Burner Street in the International Working Men's Educational Club where Stride was killed and I was wondering if you had thoughts on that, or if you've written about that, or no, I, I, I don't. Apart from uh, confirming um, that, in fact, the the, the term Lipsky was used as an uh, anti-Semitic 
uh, way of uh, offending someone or, or, or speaking disrespectfully towards a Jewish person. Um, that was confirmed not only by Abilene, that indeed that's the way that the word was used, but um, there, there are other reports, and uh, I, I cite one, um, I think, from one of the early Yiddish-language uh, newspapers um, around about the time of the Ripper murders, probably a couple of years beforehand, where the Yiddish papers, um, the Yiddish paper in question, um, brings up the fact that people, uh, Jews, were being referred to disrespectfully as um, as Lipsky. Um, so that's 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 my only real intersection um, with the with the Lipsky case. But you do in your book say that the shouting of the name Lipsky and then the Golston Street Graffito are really the only two messages that you believe the Ripper left. Well, yeah, and, you know, I, I, I've, before when I was talking about the, the night of the double event um, and, and what transpired with the geography at play and, and, and what he maybe was, was trying to achieve, um, that's, that's, another, that's another consideration that you've just reminded me of too, the, the, the fact that he should have called out Lipsky. I mean, it adds one more element of the anti-Semitic to the, to the events of that night. Now, why did he scream out Lipsky? We, we don't know, but we do know that he used an anti, anti-Semitic um, word of disrespect, um, and I think that's telling. Um, How you tie that into George Hutchison, in a way, is by taking his description of Astrakhan Man and running it parallel to the behavior of Leather Apron. Yes. Well, look, um, the well, I, I just thought, when I, when I went back and had a look at Hutchinson's statement, um, I found it was really interesting because um, he seems to have been coming back to all these leather, leather Apron references. There's about eight of them. That that there are essentially they are parallels between the the description that Hutchinson gives, and then the description that had been circulating in the newspapers about um, leather apron. And I mean, two good ones that just immediately come to mind was the fact that you know leather apron was supposed to move noiseless noiselessly. You couldn't hear his footsteps, right? So this was one of the um, um, Features of of who Leather Apron was as a as a as a villain, and it's it's really interesting that Hutchinson, of course, says yes, you know, that his suspect. I, I don't know what he had on his feet, but one thing I did notice was that he seemed to move a move along the the road noiselessly. Um, so I I I I thought that that was. Very interesting, but uh, it's it's not the it's not the um, it's not the only one. There's about eight mm-hmm. eight of them. Yeah, um, carrying his knife in a uh, leather 
um, pouch or um, a sheath kind of a thing, like a little package, I think was one of them as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. look, there's a lot of them. Yeah, the, the, yeah. There's um, <clears throat> there's quite a few parallels with uh, newspaper articles uh, in general in Hutchinson's statement. Uh, yes, you're quite right, Stephen, about the uh, the foreign caricature or the Jewish caricature uh, features that he brings into his statement. Um, but the you know there are a number of other things as well, and one of the things that, that's always struck me is that Hutchinson's residence in the um, Victoria men's home um, was well stocked with, with with newspapers. I think the the, the proprietors of the Victoria home uh, thought that it was important that their residents um, were well educated and well read, and they uh, and they laid on um, newspapers for that purpose. So it, anyone in the reading room, if they had one, <laughs> in the Victoria home um, with an interest in the Ripper case, would I'd suggest be you know. It would have, would have been very easy for them to get hold of this information to come up with a composite suspect if they needed to. Yeah, look, um, you, you, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I am left with a very um, unshakable uh, kind of interpretation of events that lead me to conclude that both Jack the Ripper and Hutchinson were readers of newspapers, big readers of newspapers. But um, you know, definitely with the with the leather apron thing, there are there are numerous numerous um, parallels between the two descriptions. And um, another one that just comes to mind is that he never attacks a man. You know, um, leather apron never attacks a man. Another man, he only attacks women. Never attacks a man, and then. Hutchinson says, you know, the man that I saw, he just didn't look like the kind of man that would attack another man. You know, so it's just, it's just too coincidental. But look, let's, let's just for, for a second put leather apron aside and what Hutchinson had to say. What I find particularly disturbing about, um, what Hutchinson, um, says in his statement is that in every which way, he has said, even without saying it, even when he's not saying it, he's saying it, that his suspect is a Jew. Because not only does he say, he tells Abilene that he's of Jewish appearance, and I mean, the media use the more politic term of foreigner, but he then says he lives locally, right? Well, that, that was the most Jewish part of, of Whitechapel that you could conceive of. I mean, um, Arkell tells us 95 to 100% for all those blocks there around Wentworth Street, Gilston Street and so forth. And we have a lot of contemporary evidence to say that, in fact, even though Arkell's study was from 1899, already in 1888, those streets were well on the way. If they weren't already there, they were just about there. Um, so he says he lives locally. He saw him in Petticoat. Petticoat Lane. Well, um, in Israel Zangwill's uh, Children of the Ghetto, he describes Petticoat Lane in 1892 as the home of hard-shell Judaism. And if their religious life centred on the Great Synagogue, then their social life centred on Petticoat Lane. Okay, so that's a description from a Jewish author in 1892. 
perfectly consistent with everything else that was said around about that time about Petticat Lane. It was known as the Jews Market. Um, and, you know, Bang Hutchinson says, oh, I think I think I might have seen him at Petticoat Lane. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, so he's, he lives locally. The leather, the leather apron, um, references, you know, he, he just brings up all these different ways of saying that he, he was a Jew. And one of the things that I, I, I propose is if we look at the person that Hutchinson brought up. Now we know that Hutchinson, he was down and out. He was underemployed, an underemployed labourer, from what we can gather. He was living hand to mouth, from from what we can speculate from the information at our fingertips. He resided. He. He resided as he did at the Victoria home, so his, his circumstances were not particularly good ones. And it's interesting that he should be describing what, to me, speaks very loudly of his class enemy in stereotype. That that British nativist element at that moment given the politics that were playing out in the East End, the fact that they were breaking to the nationalist side in opposition to the liberal Jewish side of the equation, that he should describe a well-to-do, tough Jewish gentleman. I think that is that speaks volumes to me. Um, and if you look at all the ways that he embeds his narrative with the fact that this that um, that this was a Jew, um, all the sneaky ways that he puts it into the narrative without saying it, and he's always coming back to it. You know, it, 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 I, I, I find it um, both fascinating and confronting at the same time. I give the story. I mean, I came to the podcast here a little late, um, but I was wondering if you've uh, spoken about. Uh um, Hutchinson's um, story, you know, part of his statement, like uh, what he was doing actually before, you know, he had been to Romford, you know, he'd spent all his money, he walked all the way back, all of that. Um, I just want to get your ideas on that. Like, it, you know, is it is it is it just part of fabrication of a story so he can, you know, be in the heart of Whitechapel and Spitalfields, you know, to do his business? Like, what is your take on that? Well, I think I think it's interesting that um, he was outside, essentially, of home, or happened to find himself outside of home, pretty much an hour after the doors had closed. Um, what were his plans that night? There's so much of Hutchinson's statement that you just keep scratching your head, um, you know. Correct. Yeah, like I've been doing that for years. I even wrote an article on the timing of the event because it bothered me. Everything about it bothered me, and that was like a decade ago. You know, on a on a tangential on a tangential note, um, I have to ask myself. Um, Abilene essentially greenlighted Hutchinson, right? So he wrote that memo, that report on the same night, or or at least at the very least, it's dated on the same night. Now, by the time he he got up to the uh, Commercial Street uh, Police Station, 
by the time he sat down and, and, and discussed things with Hutchinson and so forth and wrote up his report and et cetera, et cetera, how did he manage to nail down Hutchinson's alibi given the huge geography it spanned? Um, and that, you know, his, his alibi seemed to be, well, you know, I, yeah, I might have been at the epicenter of, of events here, but I was wandering the streets beforehand and I was wandering the streets afterwards. And it's, it just sort of bugs me that how 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 did Abilene manage to even contemplate arriving um, at a green light for Hutchinson in the very very short span of time that 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 he did, having green lighted him on that night. And you know maybe maybe what what hasn't survived is that after afterwards he he, he thought about. He, he 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 took maybe took his time about it a little bit more and arrived at the conclusion that look maybe there's something not quite right here. I mean certainly by the time he gives those interviews, I think it's 1902 or 1903. There's a couple of interviews there with the Paul Mall Gazette where he's talking about Jack the Ripper and the sightings of Jack the Ripper and so forth. There's there's nothing there to suggest that Hutchinson's um, still maintained any esteem as far as Abilene's concerned in his. Um, in his views of the case, um, not that, that, that's not to say that he says anything at all about Hutchinson. It's just that what he does say doesn't seem to give uh, too much corroboration to the proposition that that Hutchinson has maintained any kind of uh, esteem in Abilene's um, understanding of the case. And do you think that um, you know, without Star Lewis? Um seeing a man standing at Crossingham's lodging house across from Miller's Court, um, you know, on the night of the Mary Kelly murder. Do you think that Hutchinson ever comes forward if, if she doesn't walk down the street, like at quarter after two, or where the time was off the top of my head? But also, do you think that he used those few days to, like, try to put a story together by the time he does come forward? Yeah. Look, I, I think he must have been. Look, of course, this is this is supposition. Okay? Sure, sure, I, I get um, it. But I suspect that he must have been climbing the walls for those four days, because if you look at what was said in the papers, if you look at what was said at the inquest, there is absolutely nothing. All of a sudden, the Jewish angle has completely been dropped. So, from a media perspective, I think. You we're talking about a media, media cycle, that whole Jewish angle that had played itself out. Probably part of that was due to the Times editorial edict, and I think everyone else fell into line. Um, I think that um, certainly there was no more mention of uh, blood libels or, or what have you in any kind of meaningful way as they had up until that time. And I think the nature of what happened there with Kelly was such that the, 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 the outpouring of horror was, was enormous. I think it jumped any kind of, uh, of any other conceivable narrative because it was just so horrific. Um, uh, and so if we look at what was in the newspapers in those four days, if we look what was being, from what we can tell was being said on the street, if we look at what was said at the inquest, the Jewish angle disappears. All of a sudden, given that the, the previous murders and what had been said after the double event, all of a sudden the Jewish angle goes quiet. And I 
think as much as the Sarah Lewis possibility certainly looms large that you know it was it was um, that played on his mind that the, the fact that he'd been spotted and that he was trying to blindside the police certainly I think that that is is a is a valuable interpretation but I think ultimately what drew, drew him out was the fact that there was no mention of the Jewish angle for four days and at the very first he needed to re-establish the narrative he needed to set the record straight and so he came forward and if you read um i'm, I'm not i'm not suggesting people go out and um, read my book or anything but um if you have a look at what hutchinson says about um to the both to abilene and and to the media all he wants to talk about is the fact that his suspect is a Jew. He says it in a million different ways, or maybe not a million, but he says it in a you know good, you know four or five different ways. Well, and also but, in that very Victorian way that you know that we've come to now. Well, the euphemistically, you mean? Yeah, that, exactly, Gareth. Yeah, exactly that euphemistic kind of way that you know that we've all become familiar with. You know, guys that are foreign-looking, or you know, things like that. And, yeah, but uh, I, I, I think um, you know he he's very um, he's very focused. By the time he he's descri- describing um, Astrakhan man, um, you know he's very very focused on staying on message, and so he he, he says he you know he gives him. I, I think he gives himself away because. What, what if if we look at the events of the of the night of the double event? Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of um, anti-Semitic narrative going on then. And then, when you look at the various different ways that he finds for basically saying that he's you know he's a Jew and he's a Jew, he's a Jew, and he just keeps saying he, he says it in all these different ways, but he keeps saying he's a Jew. Um, you know, I, I think that's very telling. And I, I tend to, to the opinion that however much Sarah Lewis might have compromised his position and he might, you know, have tried to sort of blindside the police and so forth, I think that the, the, if there's, if there's a motivating factor for him coming forward, it's the fact that for four days no one said the word jerk in connection to, in, in connection to Kelly's, in connection to Kelly's murder. And you also have to remember that the Dear Boss letter, there are several competing descriptions of, of the Ripper out at the same time. So when the press is commenting on the Americanisms used in the Dear Boss letter um, and at the uh, Chapman inquest, um, there's speculation that an American medical student was attempting to purchase uteruses and then you have the witness at the Miller's court uh, describing a person with a carroty mustache and you know uh, so at the time of the Kelly murder it's almost as if the focus of the public's attention had shifted from a leather apron Pizer type character to um, you know maybe an American with a slouch hat type of a person. So um, he had uh, the tide of 
um, rumor and speculation kind of helped along by the letters that were being sent to the police and the press to um, combat yeah. his Jewish um, narrative. So. Look, I I think that to to sort of try and um, get a, take a handle of, of part of what you're saying there, um, I think that it got to the point where Hutchinson found himself in a position that he was competing with the shadow of Jack the Ripper. He was, ironically, both the catalyst for all this background noise that he'd managed to throw up with, you know, all these letter-writing impersonators and people getting in touch with the police. The the thing became bigger than Ben-Hur. And all of a sudden, um, combined with the fact that the... No one had mentioned a Jew for four days, and there was nothing in the in the press, and that his narrative had been lost. Um, I think he was confronted with the reality of having to deal with this monster that he'd created, which was the case, which was what we we're left with. So you know, however much we may be the victims of Jack the Ripper in a kind of a sad <laughs> um, kind of a way, um, in I, I think it. He came to the realization at a certain point that he was competing. He was competing with this nebulous creation that had taken form, which is the case itself as popularly understood. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that he may well have walked into Commercial Street Police Station to give his statement. He wanted to take back control of the message from Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And not only using all of these particulars from the leather apron scare, but then adding to it the um, gold watch chain and button boots and astrakhan coat, and probably in order to try to widen the net. It's not only, it could not only be a working class Jew like a leather apron but but could possibly be any class of jew in the east end well i i i think in that sense i think um he's he's giving us a picture of his class enemy um you know he he imagines his class enemy to be some wealthy jew ostentatiously attired um that's doing better than him um, and, you know, I, I, I bring it back to the, to the red handkerchief, um, that the, his suspect so dramatically unfurls at the entrance to Miller's court before Kelly and Astrakhan men walk into, into Miller's court. I, I wonder whether that red handkerchief is not some kind of a giveaway that, in fact, his wealthy Jew was the stereotypical Jewish socialist because that was, you know, one of the you know, quintessential area stereotypes that, that Jews were supposedly a socialist. And I wonder if it doesn't give us a small indication of what was going through Hutchinson's mind, where his politics were at. What were Hutchinson's politics at that moment? that he should 
have described things in that particular way. Uh, originally, um, I, I, I'd speculated that this thing about the red handkerchief, had he read it in the newspapers, because there had been reports from the night of the double event that there were uh, red handkerchiefs here and there that um, had, had, had popped up in the press. So I was wondering... You know, is it is it simply because he's reading the newspapers, which I've got other reasons to suspect that he was reading the newspapers. But this is is this one more reason that he's reading the newspapers. Alternatively, um, in the case of the uh, Tiza uh, Esla um, happenings in in Austria Hungary, um, one of the accused was the the Jewish raftsman Smilovics who was in league with the with the shockets that were that were um, were being prosecuted and supposedly according to that story the the last thing that Smilovic did when he consigned the body into the river by way of substituting a corpse for estesolomosis was the quote a special task of um, fitting her with with a handkerchief which was coloured red and blue, and I thought, well, as is he maybe picking that up from from there because you know susceptible readers were thinking that it had something to do with Jewish funerary custom or Jewish ritual murder in inverted commas. Um, is that where the red handkerchief came from? And it, and either of those two options is possible. In fact, they're both they're both possible, but. The, 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 the easiest one, or the one that also speaks to me in terms of the bigger picture of, you know, what was going on is it's, it's a really easy one to say that, you know, of course his, his Jewish gentleman was a socialist and therefore the red handkerchief has to be unfurled and he's just dropping a little psychological message into the picture that he's depicting with this red handkerchief. And let's not forget that on the night of the double event um, at the Burner Street Club that night, the, 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 the lecture was, that was given that evening was why Jews should be socialists. Um, and I've also found um, from one of the uh, working, uh, working men's newspapers, the socialist newspapers, the Commonweal, um, I've, I've found mention of the, um, the activists from the Burner Street Club parading on Sunday mornings up and down Petticoat Lane, uh, Middlesex Street. And uh, apparently just a couple of weeks before the double event, there was a huge fracas there one Sunday morning because the more religious uh, Jews took offence to the, to the activists from the... Um, Burner Street Club being there selling their newspapers and trying to recruit people to the socialist cause and um, apparently some of the activists were beaten up. Um, there was there was quite there was uh, quite some hullabaloo there just just weeks before uh, the double event and oh no I, I I speculate but I ask myself given that Hutchinson was just around the corner from there. Given that he's mentioned Petticoat Lane, given that Petticoat Lane does feature on the night of the double event, given that it was a a boundary, a very important boundary, I'm thinking 
is it, is it possible that he saw this? And it, that's why the Burner Street Club came into the picture. Because if, if you look at the murders, they're, they're, all, they're all north of a, of a particular axis that's made up of uh, commercial road and then joining onto Whitechapel High Street and so forth. Everything's north of that. Um, I think it's really interesting. Even the attack on Ada Wilson was north of that of that axis, and I think it's really interesting that he should have strayed south on that on that one occasion. And I wonder if it wasn't something very particular that drew him there. Um, and 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 that's the inculpatory thematics available to him, courtesy of the Jewish club and and newspaper. Um, Certainly, everything else happens north north of that axis. Even um, even when Hutchinson goes and reports his Astrakhan man, he goes to Commercial Street Police Station. He doesn't go to Lehman Street, and Lehman Street's closer. Lehman Street is considerably closer to the Victoria home than the Commercial Street Police Station. So it tends to suggest to me if, if we're looking at things holistically or if we accept a holistic interpretation here, he's, he, he does have this tendency of just staying north, you know. Um, why did he go to the Burner Street Club? Um, and I think that's very interesting. Those are very interesting considerations as far as I'm concerned. Um, I wanted to ask Gareth, because his participation in Hutchison debates over the last many years on Casebook are the stuff of legend. Um, you, uh, you've always been kind of skeptical of, um, just put it mildly, of uh, people who uh, believe that George Hutchison was Jack the Ripper. Because I believe you're... Um, you, um, you're s- still kind of in the toppy camp, if, if I understand correctly. What, yeah. I, I, what, what are I, your... I, I, uh, you, you, you've praised um, Jew Bader and the false flag books pretty highly. Um, what, what are your current thoughts on this whole... Uh, I, I praise them highly um, because, uh, as I said earlier, the uh, Stephen covers the... Uh, the the Jewish sort of uh, zeitgeist uh, really well, um, and that's important. I mean, um, I'm struggling to think of another uh, Ripper-themed book that does that, apart from Bill Fishman's East End 1888, um, which is only tangentially um, uh, Ripper-based, of course. Um, So I I think it's very important that any... um, in any good uh, Jack the Ripper book worth its salt um, covers those elements, and, and, and Stephen does that well. Um, so there's that. There's also, <coughs> actually, you won't find me complaining about anyone who um, thinks that Hutchinson's uh, witness statement is, is suspect. Um, I think it was. I, I, I think it was uh, demonstrably so. Well, I, I think there are strong indications which which Stephen has echoed in his in in his book, uh, although I've never explicitly made the leather apron connection before. 
Uh, but I've certainly made the connection that what we get in Hutchinson's statement to, to a large extent is a kind of a, a newspaper cuttings uh, caricature uh, of uh, Mr. Astrakhan. Um, and for whatever reason, I, 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 I still incline to the belief that uh, Hutchinson made that suspect up for some reason. Now, whether that was because he wanted his 15 minutes of, of um, time in the spotlight or, or maybe even some small reward uh, for coming forward with that information, or whether it was because he had more uh, egregious reasons for uh, inventing Mr. Astrakhan, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I certainly, of all the Ripper theories that are out there, um, the, the one I tend to more sympathetic towards than others is is this idea of a, a suspect injecting themselves into an investigation because it does happen um, I don't think it happened in this case but then uh, who knows and I think you know Steve makes a, a, a strong case for that as indeed does Gary Rowe in, in, in his previous book um, on the subject I don't incline to that particular conclusion but I can see why people might think that I certainly agree that Hutchinson as a witness needs to be um, scrutinised very carefully. And I welcome Stephen's book for doing that. And if for no other reason than I haven't actually said a word since I've been here, I'd, li I'd like to also comment that uh, Stephen's account of um, Hutchinson making his escape uh, during the dock strike was uh, new and original also, which I, I thought was a good uh, a good thing about the book. Yeah, I want to um, touch on, I know it's a really long show, but I do want to touch on the Ozzy George element, which um, is only in, like, what, two chapters of your, the, really the final couple of chapters of your book, Stephen. You had a, a, a feature story in Ripperologist, um, which um, got a lot of attention. My question about, there, there's been several questions raised on the message boards about the identification um, of George Hutchinson in Australia. I don't know if you're aware of them, because um, I don't know that you visit the message boards too often. But one of my questions to you is, you've pinpointed the ship that Aussie George left on. But what evidence have you been able to dis discover that places that individual actually as a resident of London in, or, you know, specifically maybe even in the East End prior to him leaving um, to Australia? Um, well, we, we, we know, we know um, that he's... Um, his nationality was English. He was born in England um, from the Australian um, from the Australian prison record. He's a, he described as a native of England, um, and my argument, and I elaborate on that in the relevant chapters, uh, is that the. Uh, the, the, the docks or uh, Tilbury Dock were uh, very much connected and, and an essential part 
a basic component of the London port system. Um, so there's there's a sort of industrial connection between uh, the East End and and the Tilbury Dock. Um, the, the the information uh, is 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 what it is. Um, I hope that at some future point um, we will know more. Um, but I think that the physical description of uh, Aussie George, um, the fact that he's five. Of five foot five and a half, the fact that he is quite clearly a very stocky uh, gentleman, uh, a very stoutish uh, gentleman, wide-shouldered, short, uh, full face. I think these are all uh, very interesting considerations. Um, I think that he that the fact that he was um, still working as a labourer in Australia uh, eight, eight or so years after he arrived is also very interesting in terms of the class dynamics that I discuss in the book. I think it's very interesting that he was a blackleg. Um, so there are, there are all these kind of considerations and various other bits and pieces which I put together by way of making um, an association, um, such that, that 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 you've you've asked about, um, I hope I hope one day that uh, the Australian Trail um, will start to give up um, a bit more information. Um, unfortunately, there's with this character, he seems to have disappeared from the record again. Um, unfortunately, with the, the prison records that, that we've got, um, we've only got very fragmentary uh, kind of information available to us. Um, it would seem as though uh, a broader collection of um, information that was contained with the, with the relevant files was destroyed time time ago. Um, so who knows where the next twist or turn will come? I was going to ask you, Stephen, on that point. <clears throat> In terms of the prison records that we do have uh, for Aussie George, um, it seems that his. Um, his crime was assaulting little boys, um, molesting little boys, uh, aged uh, eight and eleven, I think, um, and indecent exposure. Um, how does that square with a fugitive Jack the Ripper um, heading off to Australia? What, what, I don't, I don't think you, you you touch on that in the book. You mentioned the the crimes for which he was um, imprisoned. But, but well, you don't he was, the fact that they were very he, different from uh, what we saw in the, in the East End. Well, I, I, do, I do comment on that in a way, um, Gareth, um, because I, I and, and I know, and I know it's, an ex, it's almost an extraordinary thing to say, and I was almost, you know, almost felt bad saying it, but um, 
I'm I'm not convinced that he was satisfying any great bloodlust in terms of what he was the, the mutilations he was performing and so forth. It may well have spoken to part of his psyche. It may have meant something to him at some level. I don't know. I I don't think it was the motivating factor. I think the motivating factor was the political one, uh, which I which I propose. I realise that in saying that, um, I'm saying something that is almost inconceivable. But unfortunately, it's what I I believe to be the case, and I you know I have to put up my hand, and I can only be frank. Um, the way that I read that I've read this um, this history, the way that I've read its various twists and turns, I'm not particularly convinced that we're dealing with that kind of a killer necessarily. Um, important, it may have been important to him at some level. I don't know, but um, in terms in terms of the the little boys, he was. He was actually he was in, he was charged with um, with indecent assault. Ultimately, I think they I've, and I've and I've consulted with 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 um, a former former London barrister um, of all people who suggested to me that it's quite possible that the easiest way to have dealt with this case for whatever reason, whether it's because the uh, witnesses were children or for whatever other reason, was to arrive at some um, understanding whereby the matter was wrapped up uh, via the charge, uh, via guilty conviction in terms of um, indecent exposure. In the original uh, phase and up until the end, the legal uh, twists and turns was um, uh, indecent assault. Um, I, 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 I'm, it, it, it's not really my area of expertise to speak about um, how serial killers might uh, migrate uh, between uh, victim groups, um, but I've I've never I've never proposed that we're dealing with um, a nicely cut and easily digestible kind of an interpretation here, even at that level. Okay, thanks for that. It's almost as if um, you might have to look backwards and find um, other incidents of assault on boys in the East End. Um, how many years um, after that's, that's he arrived... Yes. How many years after uh, he arrived in Australia was he arrested? Seven. Seven. Seven years later. Um, another thing I wanted to ask about is you had mentioned, and you mentioned in your book that um, multiple times um, after his arrest that he is called a laborer. He's also um, referred to, I don't know how many times, maybe just once when, when um, he disembarks from the Ormuz as an able seaman. And there's been some discussion on the message boards about whether or not a person would have to obtain the rank of an able seaman. 
in order to fulfill that role. And, and so the question is raised, well, why would it, George Hutchison um, of Miller's Court um, had any kind of seafaring experience whatsoever, then this would have been something that would have been mentioned uh, during the Whitechapel murders. But, I, I, don't, I don't actually think he was a professional mariner. Right. Um, what we know from press reports, because that particular voyage that the Ormuz took um, was right in the middle of the Great London dock strike. And the Amurs, uh, you have to understand that the Australian harbour side played a very important part in support of the strike uh, back back in London. And keeping in mind that um, Sydney and New South Wales were still uh, a, a colonial outpost at, in those days, so it was part of the it was part of Great Britain. Um, and the Australian harbour side had played um, an enormous role. Um, in support of the industrial action in London. Um, they uh, sent a lot of money uh, in support of the, the, the striking workers and so forth. So um, the Ormuz was making all sorts of headlines and we know for a fact um, that the, 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 the labour force on, um, on the Ormuz was not a professional uh, labour force. That was a scab labour force. Interestingly, the, the, the dock strike came to a conclusion just at about the same time that the Ormuz was uh, pulling pulling out of Tilbury Dock. Um, they were putting their signatures to a peace agreement. So by the time the Ormuz arrived in Australia, the uh, strike action was over and the Blacklegs were superfluous um, to requirements. And, you know, that um, scab labour was not going to be hired on the Australian waterfront. I mean, Australia's still got a very militant um, harbourside history industrially to this day. Um, And it was particularly militant at that time. There was no way that anyone that worked on the Ormuz that was thrown off the or came off the boat under any circumstances was ever going to set foot on the Australian harbour side after that. Um, I suspect that what happened was that the, um, the, the, the labour force that was required down at the docks, um, th- th- this was why there was such a huge uh, casual, ca- casual labour um, workforce available to staff the docks because of the, 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 the huge amount of, um, of, of workmen that were required down at the docks. And I think that a casual labour, casual labourer, semi-unemployed like George Hutchinson, just got a break at that particular moment um, and decided to take advantage of the situation. Um, Interestingly, there are all sorts of records available from the London end for the various voyages um, at that general in that general in those general years from London to Australia. There's nothing that I've been able to find for the Ormuz leaving London, and I wonder if that's not because of the of of the of the dock strike. Um, 
Certainly. We know that um, the, 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 the crew on board were, were not professional mariners. I, I suspect that the way that they filled in those lower positions, for example, you know, Abel Seaman's so-called Hutchinson and um, various others on that voyage, was that they just broke it down by age because there's a, there's a, a rank even lower than Abel Seaman and where they appear, where the able seamen and this lower rank, which the term escapes me right at this moment, where they appear on the manifest, you can see that the ones that are of a lower age um, have got the lower rank. And then the ones that have got a, have achieved a particular age are able seamen. And I think that it was just the way that they paid them or the, the, the way that they broke it down for um, bookkeeping purposes. Um, but, you know, what could they do? They weren't going to write scabs on the margins there, you know. What's, what's this guy's role on the ship, scab? <laughs> um, mm. I, I think that the alternative was just the fig leaf that he was given as able seaman. But certainly we, we, we never see able seaman uh, Hutchinson ever again. Um, and the fact that he was still working in 1896 as a labourer tells you what, you know, I think that speaks very loudly. I think that that would suggest why would, why would someone who's got a professional credential that allows them to enjoy a certain standard of living, why would they be working as a labourer if they were genuinely an able seaman? He could have, you know, gotten various. Um, he could have, he could have travelled. He could have got himself um, into another port, and so forth. And none of that happens. He's still in 1896. He's still here, and he's still working as a labourer. Um, that does not suggest. Sorry, Stephen, I was, I was going to suggest that maybe his criminal uh, past, uh, and specifically the, the, the crimes of which he was committed, uh, might have counted against him getting more responsible employment? Or were they more, uh, well, not forgiving times, but perhaps they, uh, they they couldn't check up on people back then as easily as they can now? Just a well, suggestion. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a... You, it's, it's, it's the other... It's the other way around chronologically. I mean, um, the, the crimes were com the, the crime against the two boys wasn't committed until eighteen ninety six. So, how how come up until that moment? Sorry, I was in the wrong century then. <laughs> Scrub that. Yeah, but I mean, look, the the the, the point is that we, we we know we know for a fact that it was a it was a ship staffed by. Blacklegs, international headlines. You know, it, it was the actual headlines to, about the Ormuz. I mean, it's a, it's amazing just going back and looking at that history, and you know, you can almost touch it. You know, knowing this story, there are there are moments when you can just almost touch it. It's just extraordinary. Okay, um, I'm going to um, start to wrap it up. Does anyone else have any other points they'd like to touch on? Um, can I? I just touched on a point, um, Jonathan, that yes. you don't have to put on put on air because okay. um, I just it's just something I want to go back to because I I came in on the middle of the show, and uh, 
just just clarification for me. I mean, the audience already heard this stuff, so. But, but I found it fascinating because I haven't read the book yet, and I, I won't read your book, Stephen. Um, um, but I wanted to know. Um, we were talking about the the two parliamentary co- committees and their intentions to stop immigration and um, all of that. Uh, was was their intention also to not only stop immigration, but was it to also shut down the the sweatshops themselves as well? Um, be like beyond like the the immigration angle. Yeah, well, the, the, those two committees were very much intertwined in terms of their objectives, in the sense that um, people tended to collapse the two issues, the sweating system and the immigration issue, into the one consideration. You know, the one Jewish question in inverted commas. Um, and there, there were expectations that once the, the committees had wrapped up, that it was going to bring an end to the sweating system and that it was going to close the door to Jewish immigration. As it, as it turned out, um, when the committee brought the, the Commons Committee, the Commons Committee on Immigration brought down their report in 1889, um, they decided to leave things untouched um, and when the sweating system um, committee from the Lords brought down their report, I think it was in 1890 or 1891 they, when they brought down their final report, the one with recommendations, because they, they brought the, the, the Lords committee brought down about four or five reports, but when they brought down the final one with the recommendations, they decided not to uh, make any recommendations to Parliament and they determined that, in fact, the sweating system was not dragging down the conditions of British Labor. Um, The chairman of the committee, um, Lord Dunraven, who was an ally of Arnold White, who had agitated um, to get the committee started in the first place, um, resigned because he was in disagreement with the other members because he believed that the sweating system was dragging down the conditions of um, British labour. But the, the important thing with the committees, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that when they brought down those first reports in July 1888, um, that they only brought down interim reports and they disappointed a lot of people in doing that and that expectations on the street was indeed that they were going to sort out the problems as they were being described, Um, the problems of immigration and the problems of the sweating system. Um, That didn't happen. Um, It was widely reported in the press. Um, There was a lot of bitterness as a result that the committees um, essentially determined to continue going, continue taking evidence, continue deliberating. Um, And that element, that nationalistic British nativist element that had put so many hopes in um, what the committees were going to recommend were were certainly not pleased. Thanks for that. That's that. And that's a lot to, yeah, because like I said, I I just came in halfway through while you were, 
you were talking about um, the committees and, and the immigration and you now that clears things up and thank you very much yeah. on that. Yeah, it really. You is. know, we 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 did we did touch upon that um, before, but um, there's there's quite a few in really interesting things with those um, committee reports. We did we did discuss them earlier in the program. I'm I'm happy if you want to talk about them again, but um, it would just I think be a bit repetitive, but. Um, you know, if, maybe if you want to get in touch with me, um, I'm I'm happy to talk to you about it in in further detail. Sure. Yeah. It's 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 one of those things that um, part of the case that I'm not really that familiar with, um, compared to other aspects of the case. So, and I'm always looking to learn more, of course. Well, you know, that's that's a, it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, uh, it's 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 just. This sort of political aspect, this sort of uh, industrial aspect and social aspect, the demographics, the demographic shift, and so forth. I just, I just find it very, very interesting, and I, I don't think um, it, these issues have been pursued to my full satisfaction anyway. Up until uh, I've, I've, I've started grappling with it, um, and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better about it now. But um, uh, I've, 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 I've certainly latched onto something that sparked my interest. Let's put it that way. Well, I think it's a very good book, and uh, thoroughly recommend it to to anybody. It's it's um, it touches on a lot of aspects of the cases, which, as you say, have not been looked at very closely in the past, and. For that reason alone, whether you, whatever you think about George Hutchinson and, uh, or indeed uh, any of the theory that you've you've created, um, just the mere fact that you're looking at this these aspects of the case is something that I thought was very very good, and of course that you write well as well. Um, yeah, thank I, you. I, I second that, Paul. Um, and as you you said earlier, it does bring some fresh perspectives to bear. Um, and uh, some really interesting insights, actually. Actually, so mm. it's it, it's worth reading for that as well. Yes, it's a it's. I I think uh, sadly the first first book tended to get neglected a little bit, um, probably because it's a it, it came across as being a theory book, which of course it is, but but isn't, and it's more not a theory book than it is a theory book. So I and and. Um, it make it does make a big contribution to the field, and I think it needs to be respected for that. And, and indeed, for that. yeah, and indeed, a lot of books are like that. That Paul, like um, they come across as theory books when they're not really. Like you know, even your first book, um, you know, which you know details a little bit about Kosminski, is it's not really a theory book. You know, no, well, I, I was somewhat uh, disappointed because <laughs> the whole point of uh, writing that book was that it was supposed to look at the the case from the police perspective, not have anything to do about suspects at all. But right, and you, you know, the early the person, way, yeah, to start that. And Stephen now is sort of like one of the, you know one of the later people to to approach a similar angle that you did. Yeah. But it's. I think Stephen's uh, done uh, a very good job, uh, and from my perspective, as I've said, um, I think uh, 
before we started to do the podcast is, is that Stephen's book uh, is very well written and an awful lot of uh, Ripper books aren't. And therefore, um, you know, from my uh, having to read them all, uh, <laughs> Stephen's was just uh, was a breath of fresh air. It was a pure delight to read, to read that as well. I realize it's getting late for you in Australia, so thank you again for taking the time to discuss your book with us, and thank you to Paul, Gareth, and Robert for joining in. It was a reunion of one of the classic uh, Rippercast lineups <laughs> this morning. <laughs> so, yes. So it's I, nice to have five different nationalities and five different countries on the air at one time. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a very intercontinental uh, podcast, this one. It's wonderful, yeah. yeah I really it appreciate was, it. And it was very good uh, to talk to you and uh, all, and uh, especially Gareth, and most particularly Robert, who uh, I haven't spoken to for, gosh, I think they were children the last time. <laughs> gosh, it's been a while. I, I have something to send you, Paul. You're going to quite like it. Oh, let me uh, get the uh, last part of the exit out and then we yes. can talk off podcast. Again, we all encourage listeners to pick up a copy of False Flag or its predecessor, Jubater, which I believe is still available. And like I said earlier, and we've all uh, echoed, it is an excellent book, not only about what might have motivated the Whitechapel murderer, but also in his extensive coverage of the anti-Semitism that served as an ingredient that fed the events during the autumn of terror. So Stephen Sinise, thank you again for being on the show today. No, thank you. Thank you to you, Jonathan, and thank you for your patience. Um, I, I, I know I've tended to um, talk a bit too much maybe uh, during that podcast, but I appreciate the opportunity of uh, being allowed to, to speak and for your interest. And uh, for Robert, Gareth, and, and Paul, thank you very much um, for for being available uh, tonight, this morning, and uh, noon time in Great Britain, and for the kind things that you've said for my research. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. That was Stephen Sinise and False Flag Jack the Ripper. Thank you to Stephen for a fascinating discussion, and thanks as well to Robert, Paul, and Gareth for accompanying me on the show today. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Rivercast. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.